I was introduced. My name is Sue Jakes. I am the Children's Ministry Coordinator for the Committee on Discipleship Ministries for the PCA. I am the Children's Ministry Director for Westminster Presbyterian Church, downtown Atlanta. But I am mainly Mima. I have um, nine grandchildren, four of whom you see in this picture. And um, I have a real heart and passion and love for the truth of God's covenant. When Stephen says that we're on the road and I'm telling him what to do and what not to do, all I'm telling him to do is, Stephen, remember the promise. So we're going to talk about how we, as a body of Christ, how we as parents communicate the covenant of grace to our children. In relationship with God, what does it mean that our children have this great covenant of grace? I grew up Southern Baptist in South Atlanta, and when I married a, a Presbyterian, always been always a Presbyterian, uh, and I started seeing that word covenant, you know, everywhere. We went to Covenant Church, and one of our kids went to Covenant College, and he's out at Covenant Seminary, and I said, oh, the covenant, 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 you know, it's like, but as I began to train 30 years ago Sunday school teachers in the PCA, I realized that not many people really understood what we meant when we said that we live in the covenant of grace, that we make disciples, and that is covenantal. And I fear sometimes we're not as intentional as we ought to be explaining to our children what that covenant is. I love it that that word is so central to the church that I work in and serve. But I'm also very passionate about making sure not only that the people teaching children understand why that word is so central, but that they practice saying it themselves so that they can <laughs> remember it in their own heart. This really is the heart of what we believe the gospel is about. When we say that making disciples is covenantal, I just take you to the covenant, you know, there's a promise made in Genesis, you know, that God says, even though the people have sinned, his, his, Adam and Eve has sinned, he's been cast out of the garden, he makes them a promise to redeem them. He says, life is going to be war now, but you win. That's the first pres you know, promise in all of Scripture. This is war, and you win. And he begins to unfold that promise, and when he makes it with Abraham, there's a picture there for us that, where we see so clearly what it is Jesus has done in the covenant of grace. You remember Abraham and, and he has to bring the animals to make the sacrifice. God has said to him, Abraham, I will be your God. I will never leave you or forsake you. I will be all that you need, your God. Now you be perfect and blameless and walk before me. Now I wonder sometimes if Abraham didn't have like a four-year-old moment, you know, when you go in a four-year-old Sunday school class, if any of you ever lied, no. You know, if Abraham wasn't thinking for a minute, okay, I can do this. From now on, I'm going to be perfect so that I can keep this, you know, God who's going to be with me and walk with me. But God caused the sleep to fall over Abraham. And as he saw his vision clearly, the animal carcasses had been divided. The blood was poured out on the ground. And I always like to think of it as like a trough where the blood just, there it was. And Abraham knew what covenant meant in his day that if you were to promise something and you signed it with the blood, you were going to pay with your life if the promise was broken. So with the blood there before Abraham, it says that he saw a smoking pot and a flaming torch go through the blood. 
he understood when he saw that, that smoking pot go through the blood that if God was ever not all that he needed, God, God, his creator God would pay with his life. The next thing that probably should have happened in Abraham's mind was that he'd get up and walk through the blood saying, if I'm ever not perfect, you can take my life. But Abraham did not have to do that. When that flaming torch went through the blood, Abraham understood. It says he believed this promise from then on and it was reckoned unto him as righteousness. That if he was ever not perfect, God would pay with his life. And that is what Jesus did for all that He has paid with His life. Jesus has paid for you with His life. He has covered your sin with His blood. And so God stands in that moment looking at Abraham and says, Abraham, I'm yours. I'm forever. You can't get rid of me. And like I like to tell little children, you can't make me not love you. That's what God says to us in His covenant. And if we can't get our children to understand and grasp and believe anything else, this is what they need to know. As the war rages and the culture grows more and more against the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, our kids have to, in their heart of heart, you know, just hear this, have it inundated in their lives. God has paid with his life to be all that you ever need. We, we veer off so much of that in the way we teach children. You know, just a few chapters later, and I know you know the story, Abraham is told to, he said, you know, you and Lot are not getting along very well. Let Lot choose a place, way to go and let him go, and you choose a way to go. And, and, and Abraham obeys, and Lot goes the way of Sodom and Gomorrah. They have a brand new super Walmart. His wife loves it there. It's a fabulous place. And Abraham goes and lives more in the wilderness in a tent. He actually dies living in the wilderness in a tent, but he still believes the promise that, that there's a land that he has given, and he's, but he still believes. But we teach that story, and we all tell these four-year-olds who think they never lie. You know, Abraham was good, and he obeyed God, and he shared. He did what God wanted him to do. He shared with God, and you should go share too. And, of course, they all go out, and they just share. Yeah, right. That's not going to happen. What is that story about? Don't miss it. Abraham believed that he could give everything he had away. And because he still had the God of the promise, he had all he would ever need. What do you think would happen in the church of Jesus Christ today if we raised one generation of covenant children to believe that they could stand open-handed and give all that they ever have away? But because they had Jesus, they would have all they needed. We'd see revival in the land, wouldn't we? When we say discipleship is covenantal, if we're truly discipling our children, this has to become our heartbeat. You know, we're going to raise a generation of kids who really believe, hey, and when we ask them when they're 12 and 13-year-olds, you died, do you know you'd be in heaven? Absolutely. Jesus has paid the price, and I stand before God covered by his blood and blameless because he's done that for me. He's all I need. We want them to be confident about that response. So think about how you're teaching your kids at home, how you're, how you're teaching them in the church. Covenant discipleship has to be grounded in that truth. And we can't indoctrinate them enough because the world and even other Christian churches are, are pointing them in a different direction. It goes on. Be strong and courageous. Don't be afraid. The Lord your God goes with you. He'll not leave you or forsake you. 
You know, Moses, Joshua, it just goes on and on and on. And if we believe that promise that God is here, He is with us, He is with us, and we see it, of course, in the birth of Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, how does that covenant promise of God frame our design and our methods for making kingdom disciples of our children? I want to tell you one thing it doesn't look like. It doesn't look like the leadership of a church or whoever you kind of appoint as the head of children's ministry or children's discipleship standing before a congregation saying, we really need this, just like two more people to teach second grade next year. And if you're willing, would you please come? Well, we need about 15 more volunteers for VBS. If you can, you know, help us out at least one day. Well, you know, we've got Sunday school going on, but you don't have to come every week. If you just come every other week, the reason that you guys are called the body of Christ is because on earth you are to look like Jesus. And Jesus, when they started to turn the children away, he said he became indignant. Bring them to me. And he touched them and he blessed them. And so if we're really going to have the message of God will never leave you or forsake you. We have to start re-examining ourselves as the people of God. Do our children believe that we want to be with them? That we want to, to touch them? That we want to know them? That we want to, you know, and that needs to shape, that covenant promise needs to shape intentionally how we parent as well. There was a survey done just recently of 13-year-olds, and they were asked, you know, what what you they wanted most from their parents. Some of you may have seen it. There was actually a video, a YouTube video about this. Every single one of them wanted from their parents not a video game, not a big vacation, not a particular new TV or time. They wanted their time the very presence of their family. So a lot of communicating the covenant promise of God to your children is literally looking at them and say, if I could be anywhere in the world, I would choose to be with you. And that your life is an example of that. But oh, how I long for that from the whole body. That we raise a group of children who really believe it, that every single adult in the church would sit with them to eat dinner if they could. Because... They believe the promise of God. All right. Making disciples is also a family affair. And here's mine. You got a promise earlier that you would kind of know us. The uh, baby that's in the womb. Do, do I have that little that little thing that you had, that little pointer? I'm not real good with this. Where is it? Right there? Ooh, fun. That's in the womb there is now over here. That's Maggie Day, my youngest granddaughter. But there's now a baby in this womb also, some of you in the audience know this one, my son Jonathan, because you were at Covenant College with him. Yeah, I've already talked to some people about that. Um, but I have four children, Jeffrey, Jessica, Jonathan, Joanna. They're all in that picture. You can kind of pick out which one. Two of the guys, two of the girls were mine. They're all married. And I have nine grandchildren, counting the one that's now in the womb. I have one in heaven with Jesus. And um, if you were to talk about Stephen Estark's family, and I've been able to witness pretty close up the last 10 or 12 years, the faithfulness in this man uh, teaching his children and loving them unconditionally, I would want to say, do what Stephen did. Because, I mean, he was consistent and intentional. 
But he said tonight and told you that he has two sons that he really prays often and regularly, continually for about their walk with the Lord. Well, I have four adult children and they're married and they all not only love Jesus, they're all teaching in the church. Um, they have hearts for God unlike their mother's ever was. And so you might want to say, you know, I think I'll follow your method. What was it? Well, for 24 years, I was married to a PCA pastor, and 20 years ago, he left. He left them, he left my family, he left these children when they were 8, 11, 15, and 17. So at 44, I became a single mom. I had actually done a, a series, Heart of the Home, that some of you have actually studied the, the last lesson I wrote for Heart of the Home was how a good mom could be a better wife. Uh, yeah. So I stand before you today to say that I had major, major meltdown and such great fear. What will children at this age, what will an 11-year-old boy whose father's walked out of the house and he doesn't see again for months, but yet it's the father who prayed with him at his bedside every night and father who taught him the catechism, and now he's gone. What's going to happen to him? You know, he's going to run. He's going to, he's going to decide, I'm forgetting this. It must not be true. But the God who promises is faithful. And rather than my children running away from the church and away from the gospel, ultimately they all ran to it. My daughter Joanna is a, is a children's ministry director. This one right here. And we were in a group one time. I should have write her testimony. It started like this. When I was nine years old, my parents got a divorce. And she started to cry. She couldn't finish it. And somebody in our group, in our covenant community, said, Joanna, let me read it. And they began to read her testimony. And the line in it I'll never forget, and I still have it actually on my computer, is she said, a lot of people look at me now and say, boy, you were raised by a single mom. You, she really did a good job. You really turned out good. And she says, you know, I tell them, a lot of that's true. I did turn out pretty good. She's kind of funny. She says, but I was not raised by a single mom. She said, I had more mothers and fathers and grandmothers and grandfathers than anybody could ever imagine because the body of Christ was our family. And I saw examples of godly husbands and godly wives. And, he said, and I remember three congregations where her father had pastored when she got married showed up. I had men calling me from all over the southeast saying, could I give Joanna away? Could I give Joanna away? I said, no, but we're going to have a massive father dance. And we did. She danced with ten men for the father dance. Because God's promise is true. Your earthly father may not live up to expectations, but your heavenly father has promised and he is faithful and true. And that is just our story. We're sticking to it. Doesn't mean there weren't some horrifying times and some really rough patches and some, but we just kept walking. At one point I had what I call the Southern Hissy Fit meltdown. Um, if you've never seen one, God bless you. Um, but it's something like this. <laughs> what are we going to do? We're going to live under the railroad tracks. I don't have anybody and you're going to have to go to school. I homeschooled. I'm sitting here on the school on the bus in the morning. And, you know, and, you know, it's very, and my 15, almost 16 year old daughter, Jessica, at that time, who's now my very best friend in the world, she just took my face and she, Mom, she said, Daddy left, but Jesus is still here and he's not going anywhere. I went, 
Oh, yeah. Who told her that? <laughs> what did she just tell me? The covenant promise of God. He is still here. And he is not going anywhere. We had to put that promise to great test. But I stand here before you to tell you that Jesus really is enough. And he really, in spite of the worst case scenario you could paint, is faithful in your children's hearts. You don't know when or how, Stephen, but you know he is a faithful one. Making disciples is also the responsibility of the church, not just a family thing. That's one of my latest VBS designs at Westminster. But that's what Jesus, it, we always say MTW tries to steal our verse. This is a, this is a discipleship ministry verse. It's, it's, it means as you live, make disciples. It's the only thing God, that Jesus told us to do. You know, he didn't ascend into heaven and look down and say, y'all get a great education and make a lot of money and make sure you're financially secure. That one always gets me because the last big, like, denominational-wide discipleship conference we had we had about 400 people there. And across the street were 8,000 Christians at the Dave Ramsey finding out how to be financially secure. Because that's what worries us, isn't it? Not whether or not we're going to be obedient to Jesus and faithful disciple makers, but boy, that we can, you know, whew, financially get all of our ducks in a row. And I, I made that contrast so that you know this really is what Jesus left us to do. And parenting is the most obvious, regular, easy ways to make a disciple. When you get to be my age, you look around and you go, huh, I think I made a disciple. It was hard. I thought about killing you once, but I didn't. <laughs> you are here with me now. I think we uh, accomplished something there. So what is your role in making kingdom disciples? And a lot of people, you know, I tell them one of the greatest things you can do as a parent is model disciple-making before your children. How do you do that? Every member of the covenant community ought to feel every hour of the day that next to making his or her own calling and election sure, nurturing the next generation is the end for which he is kept alive by God. Louis Burkhoff is a big theologian. You know, probably have studied his summary of Christian doctrine sometime or another. But he also did with Cornelius Van Til a book called Letters on Christian Education. And he basically says... If you're breathing today, God has left you here because you're still in the disciple-making process. It's the purpose for which we live. I love this quote. What a church's covenant children become is what that covenant community will become. So what are they going to become? We hope that they become kingdom disciples. You always know you've made a disciple when your disciple is making a disciple. And their disciple when they're making a disciple. Are you following me? It's just, that's how God built his kingdom for years. Covenant children have married covenant children and had covenant children. We keep telling the story. We want them to have a heart that loves King Jesus and a mind that thinks like King Jesus and a life that follows and serves King Jesus. Luke 6.40 says in the discipleship mode, any student when fully trained will be like his teacher, but you could change that to, any child, when fully trained, will be like his parent. And, you know, so a lot of times you say, that's heavy duty. So you basically are saying it is up to me. You're pointing your finger at me again. See, well, I hear you. No. But I'm saying as we're intentional and consistent, children become who you are far faster than they become what you want them to be by telling them. You know, if, 
if the kids would sit down in a room and you just tell them what to do and they would do it, we wouldn't be having this conference. <laughs> but I will guarantee you one thing. Sometime or another, they're going to act just like you. It's just how it's in our, in our image bearing. As we bear the image of God. You ever, most women in this room have had that moment where they, you know, talking and they look up and they go, oh no, I have become my mother. I'm my mother. I said I'd never be my mother, but I'm my mother. Or your husband has said you're just like your mother, you know, and you slap his hand. No. It's almost impossible for that not to happen because it's how we are made. As we bear God's image, we bear the image of our parents, and, and it goes on and on and on. So who are we as parents? Who are we as the body of Christ? Who are we as a covenant community that they may follow our example as disciples? This is some real practical stuff. I hope you hear because uh, Larry Richards in his book on Christian education followed up on the Luke 640 by saying this. Much of education is about students becoming knowing what their teachers know. I used to teach high school English. I'd teach junior boys how to diagram sentences. They'd raise their hand, why do we have to know this? And I'd say, so you can pass the course and graduate. But, you know, you just, you got to know this. you got to know it, know it. But Christian education or discipleship is concerned with helping people become who their teachers are. Who are we that they follow in that example? William Farley, and this is a book that's on our book table. It's one of my favorites. And I'm going to tell you why it's one of my favorites. I did homeschool. I was able to continue for 22 years. He makes a statement early on, and then he backs it up with some really great thought, I think, provoking instruction. It's a great Sunday school class for parents. Um, he talks about, he's my age, that our generation really, really wrestled with how in the world we're going to educate our kids. You know, there was this movement, we're keeping them all at home, and then they're going to be great little Christians. You know, we're starting a Christian school, and then they're going to be great little Christians, you know. We're sending ours to public school, and they're going to be great little missionaries, you know. And the, the discussion has just gone on to where it is just, it's really wearying. You know, how are we going to, we talk about how we're going to educate our children, how we're going to educate our children. He says the verdict's out. It doesn't make any difference. <laughs> There's good, bad, and ugly in all the camps. But here's the deal. He said, you also see that children really care what their parents think about them. And if their parents are really intentional and consistent about their walk with the Lord, eventually that's going to be their heartbeat. He said, and he's got some statistics in there that talks about it, which I think gives great hope. For the Stephen S. Docs, I tell him, what's going to happen to this son that's getting married? He's going to have a little kid, and he's going to think, I want him to go to Sunday school like I did when I was little. And he'll wander back into the church. It happens all the time. <laughs> well, you triggered the Sue and I as we were talking. Up, This happened just a few weeks ago with my oldest, my 22-year-old. We were in a, having a conversation, and my 22-year-old decided he was tired of high school and didn't want to go to college. And so he was going to take a gap year, but he had got an internship to be a computer programmer the summer after his high school graduation. And he did that. And at the end of the summer, he was going to go look for another job. And they said, well, do you want to work here? And so he started working there as a computer programmer. And then he, after six months, his lack of a degree caught up with him. And then 
his boss said, it's not going to work out here, but my brother has a job, has a company, and you might fit there. And so my son has been working for them since then. He's been completely independent. And this, just a few weeks ago, we were talking, we were talking about the wedding, and I said, son, I'm so proud of what you've done. And you've been independent. You're now at the point where you're ready to get married and you can take care of a wife. That just, that's just, you've really done a good job. The next day, my soon-to-be daughter-in-law was talking to my wife and said, you know, when, when your husband said that, it really threw Brandon for a loop. Brandon was thinking that I wasn't proud of him because he didn't go to college. And when I said those words, it just melted him. And then we had lunch together on Saturday, just a couple of days after we had had the conversation. And he was able to tell me, Dad, that really meant a lot to me, that you told me you were proud of me. And so if, if I could tell you one mistake I made is I should have done more of that. But you see, I'm the taskmaster judge parent. <laughs> and I wish I had gone back and said, son, I am proud of you and I love you for that. So learn from my mistakes. But the, in it, just the redeeming love of God, you know, in those relationships and what he's promised and covenant. Uh, these are three of my favorite young men in the world. One I've done multiple mission trips with. It's not my son, Jonathan Trousdale, is now on a, a crew in Sarajevo. Um, and his little boy in the sand, and my son, Jonathan, and my son, Jeff, with two of my grandsons on their shoulders, you know. And those are powerful pictures to me because I realize the hope doesn't lie in them being perfect parents because I know all three of those guys, and God bless their wives. <laughs> But I also know that I have witnessed in all three of them the miracle of God's redeeming grace. And it can be seen. If you hang in there long enough, you can see it in all three of them. And these boys are going to see that. They're going to witness that. They're going to see. And just, just that. And that's what you know, William Farley talks about in his book. He said that, that's what you need to, to hope in. Is that the God who promises is faithful. The God who promises is faithful. The means by which this happens. How do we march around the walls, blow the trumpet, and shout? Okay? We're going to wait for Him to bring down these walls. You see, we're going to wait for Him to work in the lives of our children. What do we spend our time doing? Remember when I said that Christian discipleship, education, is about them becoming who we are. We have a, a lifestyle, a kingdom lifestyle that we must be actively representing in their life. And I'm telling you, this is one of the weaknesses of the church in America today. We are too busy to act like God's people. We are too busy to do kingdom stuff. And so I want you to take a look at, at this list. We're going to go one at a time and just ask the question, is, is this what they are learning when they watch me, are they, is this what they're learning? Am I faithfully marching around the walls of Jericho with the Bible being taught? That's how we learn the covenant. 
is we teach the Word. I, you know, fifth graders in the church sometimes will go, this is boring, we already know this. And I said, well, too bad. Because it's not an option. We study the Word until we go home to be with Jesus or He comes to take us back where we belong. We are always amazed at the Word. You cannot teach the Word too often, too seriously, too completely to the next generation. And you cannot study it enough on your own. It's how God shows us who He is. I teach, I train Sunday school teachers all the time, you know, and I tell them, real, you know, we, most of the time we got that book in our laps going to church on Sunday morning that, oh, what's the next lesson, you know, and they get to Zacchaeus, oh good, I know that one, I'll wing it, you know, when they wing it. And I always say, shame on us. You don't do anything else in teaching children. A week before you're going to teach that lesson, open your Bible and read Luke 19. 1 through 10, the story. It starts out with Jesus was passing through Jericho. Where was he going? Oh, I don't know. Oh, oh, triumphal entry. Oh, my goodness. Zacchaeus. He went home with Zacchaeus like 10 days before the cross. Oh, good. You know, and, and we just go through and I look. I said, let me tell you what. If you really open and read the Word and you start every week, you will learn something new about the God who has promised. And then when you go in to teach children, you become a primary source of who God is, and you say, look, I learned something new this week, and it's exciting and fresh and new. And I don't be the teacher who just tells the kids what you read, that the curriculum writer wrote about what they read when they read the Bible, and you just caught it on your way to church. This is exciting stuff. It is the greatest story ever told. And our kids need to, to learn from us that, that opening and studying and teaching the Bible is as good as it ever gets. If you don't believe that, repent. <laughs> Pick up your Bible and ask God to show you that kind of zeal for His Word. We teach the Bible and they learn the covenant. And then we have fellowship, and fellowship is not food. Oh, yeah. We like to think it is, but fellowship, these are my kids. I have a mixture here of family and, and my church family. These are my church kids at Westminster in Atlanta. We enjoy the covenant when we communicate and encourage. Galatians 6, he says, we bear one another's burdens. When we are always talking with one another about our need of God and our rescue by God, what it is God is doing, what it is we need Him to do, His faithfulness. Our children need to hear us having fellowship discussions. Not just coming to church and saying, ah, the Cardinals won again. Ah! <laughs> I like to pick on my Cardinal friends. Yeah. Go, cubbies, go. But anyway, they, that's fine for them to hear that. But are they having an equal amount of God stories? When it says in Psalm 78 that we tell the wondrous deeds of the God, it doesn't mean that we're just telling about the fall of the walls of Jericho. The wondrous deeds of God are things that we have seen Him do in our life. I hope that you heard, I have a wondrous God story in my life. I have four children who love Jesus in His church, but they were abandoned by their pastor father. That's a God story. I'm going to tell it. I want people to have hope in the God that I have hope in. You have a God story. Every one of you had it. Are the kids in your church hearing in the fellowship and the encouragement of who God is and what he's doing? Then we pray. And pray is not teaching about praying. It's actually praying. Uh, a few years ago in the, the old PCA ma uh, magazine, the PCA Messenger, there was an article by Frank Barker, who, of course, founded Briarwood Church in Birmingham. And it was on prayer. He's, he is a prayer warrior. But it was about his guilt and lack of prayer. He said, I, I feel so bad when 
members of my congregation come and they say, Frank, you know, my mom's, you know, really sick and she's going to have surgery this week. Will you pray for her? And he says, yes. You know, hey, my brother's looking for a job. Will you pray about that? And he says, yes. Then a week or so later they come and say, thanks for praying. She did great. She's doing really good after the surgery. And he's like, I don't think I ever prayed about that. I told her I would. And those things begin to convict him more and more. So when people in the congregation came and said, hey, Frank, my mom's having surgery this week, he says, okay, let's pray. They take their hand and pray right there on the spot. And it is still to this day, not an unusual sight, to be walking down the halls of Briarwood Church and seeing Frank Barker holding somebody's hand and praying because they asked him to. Our children need to see us doing that. Rather than they're saying, oh, I'll pray for you, or oh, let's pray about that. When they come to you and they say, my aunt's really sick, you said, let's pray. And you were actually praying with them. That's how they will learn to pray. Not by taking courses on it, but doing it. And so are you praying regularly? If you pray with your children when they're two, when they're 22, it'll be the most natural thing for them to pray. The delight of my life is when my children call me, and I hadn't talked to them in days, sometimes weeks, and I say, what are you doing? I said, well, I'm about to head out for a parenting conference in Clarksville, Tennessee. It's happened this morning. Well, Mom, let me pray for you. And they pray. Because we started doing it in a point in our life out of desperation. But we all have desperate moments. Are you praying with and for your children? It's the privilege of a covenant. And we serve. They see us. Doing the work of the body. You know, you say, oh, I hope my child has a servant's heart. Have a servant heart. Oh, I hope my child will love and want to serve in the church. Love and serve in the church. And bring them alongside of you. Uh, they will never serve because they took a course on serving. But they, if they participate with you, one of the things I encourage in children's ministry in the church, I'm going to talk with you tomorrow about this. <laughs> We're going to talk a little bit about children's ministry here is how to get children serving at the very youngest age. If they just, if you just teach them all that you know until they're about 11 and 12, then they kind of get bored and they go, yeah, oh, yeah, you know this. We say, oh, we've got to entertain them. Let's do a lot of fun stuff for a few years, you know, and maybe we'll do and then we cannot entertain the world, and then they kind of leave. And what keeps people in the body of Christ is not, sorry, just great preaching, and it's not just, you know, a worship service that they like. It's when there's a ministry there that they own. And 10-year-olds and 11-year-olds and 12-year-olds need to begin to own ministry in the body of Christ. How are your children learning to serve at home and then at church? It's what we do. For the Son of Man came to serve, not to be a servant, be served, but to serve. We enjoy the sacraments. And some of you may think this is a kind of a funny one. You know, why? Oh, what? But in everything that we do, you know, Jesus knew we were going to forget the very heart of the covenant promise. We're going to forget. And he gives us outward signs of that inward grace so that we would remember. So that when we baptize, we tell our children, why is it that we do this? Remember the Passover question? When your children ask on this night, why are we eating these things you tell them? Well, that's what the sacraments of the church are to do. They're to be pictures that, we, that cause questions in our children's lives. And when they ask about the blood, and we should tell them about the wine and the bread as the blood and body of Jesus with tears in our eyes. He has died for me. And I believe he has died for you. And I long for the day when you take the bread and you take the cup and you say, 
I believe this too. Because it will be as it was with Abraham, reckoned unto you as righteousness. The covenant is pictured for us. Um, I'm trying to look at my time real quick, but I think I have time. One of my favorite stories with really coming to understand the power of a picture. When my son Jonathan was two, I was expecting a baby, and his his older siblings were like seven and nine, and somebody literally gave us a trip to Disney World. So we were going to take the seven and nine-year-old, leave him at home. So I was expecting. I didn't want a two-year-old and pushing a, you know, this. Yeah. So we told the older kids we're leaving Jonathan home. They broke down. No, you have to take Jonathan. He loves Dumbo. And we were, I'm not going. And so they just said, you know, we're not going. And so we kind of did the child-centered parenting. We're like, okay, we'll take Jonathan to Disney World. And he really did um, have a great time. But I did one of those memory books, you know, where you do all the new cut and you paste and you make all the pages. Somebody tell me what they're called. So when, yeah, not my thing, but I had a lot of pictures from Disney World, so I made one of those books, and it became Jonathan's favorite book. So he was like four and a half, almost five years old. We had friends come through from, from Louisiana on their way through Montgomery, on their way to, to Disney World, and Jonathan got out the book, and he told him the whole story. Here's Cinderella's castle. My daddy lost his sunglasses there. You may want to check with Cinderella and see if she still has the, his sunglasses. And, oh, here's Dumbo the elephant. I didn't want to get off. And so I cried and cried and screamed, and they didn't make me get off. And I got to ride again without going to the end of the line. And then I cried again, and they didn't make me get off. And I got to, without going to the end of the line. And, you know, and he goes through, and he just tells his whole story of Disney World. And my friend Karen Demery looked, looked at me. She said, I thought you said it had been like three years since y'all were there. I said, it has. He said he talks about Disney World like he was there yesterday. I said, it's the pictures. You know, he's had the pictures. And when I read that in our confession, that the sacraments are pictures, outward signs of what God has done in our life, I I realized that he gives us pictures. Every now and then, our children should see us act like people who were just saved yesterday. I don't know if you've had any of those in your congregation lately, but they're pretty obnoxious. You know, newly saved people, you know, they just want to talk about Jesus all the time. And they're like going, oh, isn't God good? And they just come in there here every time the door's open and they're just so excited about it. Well, that's how our kids should see us occasionally about this faith that we have. It's a little bit obnoxious about what an amazing promise we have in Christ Jesus. A little bit obnoxious about the assurance we have of eternal life. A little bit obnoxious about a God who is all that we will ever need. And that when we have the sacraments on Sunday mornings and we see a baptism and we take communion, do you get that feel in your heart? Like just yesterday you understood what it was that Jesus had done for you. That's the sacraments. And that's part of our community and part of the way of life that we're passing on to the next generation. And then we experience discipline. We're going to spend a lot of time on this in the morning. <laughs> and it's a hard one. But yet it says, not just in discipline of our children, but in church discipline. Our pastor always tells our young families who are wanting their kids to go through communicants and take communion, he says, don't push it until you're ready to submit your child to the discipline of the session of the church. Because that's what they will, they will be saying when they take the vows. 
Is your child mature enough in the Lord that you can submit them to the discipline of the leadership of the church? Our children need to be aware of that and to know we're not a people that are, are helicoptering or free range or anything. I said we are saying God has a way that is best and together we're going to try to always make boundaries so that we do what is God's best. So it's a, a learning process. Like I said, we'll talk more about that in the morning. And then my favorite, we will worship the King. This is some of my kids at Westminster showing the little kids how to worship, and sometimes they're really bad at it. I sing in a choir. The saddest moments I ever have in Sunday mornings is when I'm sitting in the in the choir, and I look at the congregation, and they're singing. Oh, for a thousand times to see my great Redeemer's praise, the glories of my God and King. I wanted to say, stop! Stop it right now! Did you just say, oh, for a thousand tongues to sing? Why would you want a thousand tongues when you're barely using the one you've got? Really? Our children are watching. Do we believe that it is truly the response to this great pro- you know, promise that we sing, that we praise, that we worship with our lives and service, that worship is just more sometimes than we can even bear. It's so exciting and we don't want to miss it and we're looking forward to heaven because we're going to get to do it forever. I told Caleb that one day, my oldest grandson, he was about six at the time, he looked to me and said, Mimo, I know you really, really like heaven, but um, I really like Georgia, and I think I think I'm going to just say. <laughs> but then, <laughs> three years ago, when Caleb was nine, and um, his little cousin only lived six days, and we had to bury little William. And we talked about the eternal promise that we had and where William was. Caleb came to me and he said, William is in the perfect place, isn't he? Mima? I said, yeah, he is. He said, and we're going to get to go there. I said, we are. You know, we live long enough, you begin to long for that place. And, and so we worship knowing this is what we're going to be doing forever. And yet sometimes our children really don't want to go to heaven if that's what we're going to be doing because it doesn't look like we're really having much fun doing it. Does it? Worship with your whole heart and know that they are watching. The covenant of grace is our passing on a lifestyle that says, man, why would God choose me? But he did. Why would he be so faithful when I deserve none of him? But he has. Why is it that the God who created has prepared the perfect life place, plan for me and has also promised that this is not just for me but for my children and my children's children and those are far off. One more quote from my dear grandson Caleb. I was looking to see if I had a picture of him up there anywhere. I don't think I did. I'll get back to that. <laughs> I had lunch with him just recently and we were eating. He says, Mimo, I've decided that I want as many children as God will give me. And I said, well, I hope your wife will agree to that. She is the one that's going to have to have them, you know. He said, I I just want a lot of children. And I said, well, why is that, Caleb? He said, because. And I've told my kids this before. He says, Jesus is coming back. 
when the last name in the Lamb's Book of Life believes. And maybe one of my kids will be that name. All right. Where did he get that mindset? Why did that happen in Jesus' church? He's coming back when the last name in the Lamb's Book of Life believes, because this is all about the war of redemption, and it'll be done then. It's like, let's, which one of these children? Let's just keep telling the children. Let's just keep telling the children. And I realized that even into the next generation, I'm creating crazies <laughs> about the covenant of the kingdom of God. But that's what we want to do. The world does think this is foolish, but it is not. It is a great hope. Ben Allender says it this way. The greatest hope we have as parents is getting to the place. This is where I am. We hand our grown children to the Lord and say, now will you teach them what you've been teaching me? And those of you in the room that are old enough to know that, know that you do. You just you get them to the place. And here's why he says that. Children are a blessing because they teach us something that no other experience can ever teach us. If you don't ever have biological children, you get involved with the, the children God has given you in the covenant of, of the, the body of Christ because they teach us things that no other experience can teach us. I've lived a long life. I'm certain of this one thing. They are blessings not because they just bring us so much peace and joy and delight every day. No. They are blessings because we cannot live with them for very long without knowing our need of the God who made them and gave them to us. We become a lot less selfish, but we also become so much more dependent on the one who's crying out, Trust me! Trust me. This is what I screamed to, to Stephen in the car. Trust him, Stephen. Those boys are coming home. <laughs> oh, the task is dependent upon supernatural intervention. This is my last slide. As we cry out, help. In the morning, we're going to look at discipline, discipleship, and leading them in worship. How we, we really help our children love and desire to worship. So I hope you have good rest, good sleep tonight. Uh, thank you. And know that in the morning we are going to, especially during the discipline, give you lots of opportunity for questions. So even some of the things you've heard tonight, you know, be thinking about that. Plus we have Q&A on Sunday morning. Can you make it to the car? It's late. It's Friday night. Thank you. Let me close this in prayer. Father, thank you for your faithfulness going all, way, all the way back to the garden where though mankind sinned against you, you came with salvation. You came with that covenant of your gracious mm. salvation. And now we live in the light of that reality even as we parent. Lord, I pr pray for all of us. Pray for these as they go home, they pick up their children, and Lord, I pray that even in their conversations together as spouses and as parents, that you will bless them tonight. Lord Jesus, thank you for being obedient, even unto death, so that we would live. We give glory in your name. Amen.